You're listening to the sermon podcast from Christ Community Church in Ardmore, Oklahoma. Our mission is to equip people to be true to Christ, be kind to all people, and be the body of Christ to our community and beyond. For more information on how we can equip you, and for more resources, visit ardmorecc.com. Now, here's Pastor Artie with today's message. We're going to jump into part two, Philippians chapter three, verses 12 through 16. Thank you for everyone who's here this morning. Thank you for all those who are joining us online, and thank you to those of us who are watching this from the future. Uh, we, we, we appreciate you connecting with us in some way. Uh, as you know, we started out looking at this idea of, of Paul's narrative that he shares, and we about how he's using his narrative. He's being both theological and biographical as he talks about his experience, particularly his conversion experience, which is very interesting because we are used to hearing conversion experiences. In fact, I wouldn't just say used to it. It's predominantly the conversion experience narrative that we listen to is the idea of someone going from being an unbeliever to a believer. But what's interesting about Paul and what he models and what is a, a reality that we, we, we often don't get to hear is what about the conversion of someone who's religious who then becomes spiritually alive? And, and I'm not even saying what we would call what Paul is engaged in is a, quote, false religion to Christians. It's the religion that gave birth to our movement. And so Paul was a believer, and he was embracing, quote, right doctrine in the way that he was taught. And yet, he was just a purveyor of ideology until he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. And he started that Damascus Road as one who was driven and, and promoting an ideology, and then he became someone who was spiritually alive from the radical relationality of what it means to walk with the living Christ. And then as we talked about, as we covered, and you can see in your notes, you can reference it back in Galatians, once again, we, we typically use some kind of narrative of conversion being, uh, I asked Jesus to come into my heart. And so by that, we mean, we, we mean there was something I wasn't or something I didn't have. And then luckily someone um, shared the gospel with me. And then I responded by asking Jesus in my heart. Which it's again, that would be my story too. I'm not belittling that language. I'm not belittling that narrative. In many ways, that's for years how I understood what happened to me, and that's the language that I used. But I do think it's important for us to recognize that in the scripture, that's not the language Paul used. He didn't say at one time, I asked Jesus in my heart. He said at one point, finally, God revealed Christ in me. Now, that's a very interesting turn of phrase because it's as if he's communicating there was a reality that I just couldn't see. And at some point, God was kind enough to open my eyes to see what already was. And so he is not promoting this idea that salvation is like a magical result of an incantation that we say called the sinner's prayer. He says salvation is a matter of waking up to the God who's already been awakened to you. Salvation is a matter of recognizing who has already been there. But now you see it in a new way and you realize, oh my goodness, I've been using religious ideology to pursue a God out there and I'm never going to find him because he's in here. And that's why Paul says, when it was time, God revealed Christ in me. 
And so then he plays on, or, or he then begins to articulate that. And what we centered around is this idea of what Paul says, forgetting what lies behind, which is surrender, and reaching forward what lies to what lies ahead, which is lies ahead, which is setting your att- intention. So we ended with that bit on forgetting what was behind. And we talked about that. Now, obviously, this isn't literal because Paul says, I'm forgetting what goes behind. And then he goes into all the detail about what was behind him. So, so what he means by that isn't that he couldn't remember, but rather he was making a conscious choice to not let what came behind inform his identity in the present. And instead, he was, looking, he was living from a present encounter with the, with the living Christ, and he was looking forward to what lies ahead. And so now we reach that point, reaching forward to what lies ahead. And we're on the bottom of page two here. And he says, uh, uh, Paul then moves forward with focused intention. Look at verse 14. What he says is, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. I pursue as my goal the prized promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Now, this is really interesting because then we want to ask ourselves, what is the goal of the prize promised? And I think the best place to look is immediately within the context itself. Because obviously, we could, we could sit around and smoke our pipes and cigars and pour our brandy or our coffee, whatever your thing may be. And we could all go around the room and say, what do you think that prize is? What does that mean to you? And I am sure we would have a fantastic, very engaging conversation. But when we're reading the scriptures, before we go to that place, because that's quickly going to the question, um, reading, I mean, that's quickly going to the place of reading the Bible as my story. But we want to read it first as his story and their story, our story, and then my story. So instead of asking, what does that mean to me? Let's look at the context. Well, the context is Paul is celebrating the reality, the revelation that there is a new covenant that is in place. And it's a new covenant with Christ on behalf of humanity, not simply a covenant like the old covenant that was made with a particular ethnic group. It is a universal covenant. And Paul is celebrating this reality and his, his, uh, he's alive with it because he, this is a unique man in that he passionately served the former covenant. And based on this revelation, he's willing to turn in another direction and pr- pursue with just as much zeal this understanding of this new covenant whose secret prize is revealed throughout his letters, particularly in Colossians, which is this. It's the mystery that was hidden for the ages. But now in the fullness of time has come to bear. And the, and the mystery is this. This message is for all of you Gentiles. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so we pick this up. And so with that as the context, let's think about this. We are not pursuing in, to become someone new. We are pursuing to align with the new we have become. We are not pursuing God to become something new. We are pursuing God in order to align with the new that we have become. This is why I am a death coach. Because I say, stop becoming. Stop changing and start aligning. We have to recognize that all that we want to be is already who we are. 
This person that is, that is, that, that is, uh, that is uh, uh, living from an awareness of their divine connection with God. This is something we've already been given. But the problem is we pursue a lifestyle of discipleship that says, yes, you're accepted, you're saved, you're forgiven. And then our discipleship says, now maintain it with all the work so that you become a better person. And the revelation is you're already who you need to be. All that outward striving is a smokescreen to sitting still and allowing the Holy Spirit to allow that revelation to come up from your heart to where I'm just aligning with who I am. I'm not trying to change who I am. And unless you do that, your discipleship will always be based in your own self-hatred rather than in an embracing and a love of who you are. And, and I know it's a, it's a weak analogy, and I know that um, the danger of being a pastor in one place for this long is that you just keep telling the same stories. But luckily, I had a pandemic hit, and a lot of you haven't heard some of these stories. So, so I know it's a silly analogy, but I, so I have been on this rocky road of especially trying to address my health, not all my life, clearly, uh, but I have been trying to be really thoughtful of it after I turned 40. I, I just consider zero to 40 as the eating years. And... Um, and then 40 beyond is dealing with the consequence years. But I, I would do all of these things from, you know, soft workouts to casual workouts to even like these boot camp workouts. And, and, and I had positive experience with all of those. But the issue wasn't with the trainer or with the gym or with the philosophy. It wasn't any of that. It all was in me because it wasn't sustainable because I was working out because I hated my body. I hated who I was, and I was trying to beat it into submission and become something else. And it wasn't until that I realized the only way to have a sustainable, healthy lifestyle is if you're doing it out of love for yourself, not out of hatred for yourself. Then you're allowed to start small, make incremental changes that then move you to a direction till you realize, oh, I wasn't, this healthy person was here all the time, but I was making poor choices to allow it to come to surface. And I still backslide from time to time, but moving in a much more positive direction. It's the same way I see it in Christian discipleship all the time. People are zealous to want to be faithful to Jesus, but it's because they hate themselves. And they're so unhappy with who they are, they're trying really hard to be more committed so that then not only will they feel like they're being faithful to God, but they can also have some peace within ourselves. And God will not participate with that because if he did, he would only reinforce the idolatry and the deception that we have to strive to be worthy of his love. And he's trying to show us, sons, daughters, who you are is what you've been given. We were having a discussion in home group, like, how do you grow in intimacy with God? Or how do you, how do you grow in your holiness? And of course, we were all given our answers that the way we thought about, you know, steps to getting closer to God and so forth. But it dawned on me as we were asking that question is that it's like asking, how do you continue being the child of your parents? What do you do? I have no choice. I stop and recognize that this is a reality that cannot be undone by my bad behavior, nor can it be made more real by my good behavior. It just is. 
So now I get there's a difference between being intimate with God and being conscious of our intimacy with God. But I just think it's important that we realize what we're working on is alignment. It's about being conscious of where we are in Christ, not striving to become something. And that's all that religion can promise you is some version of self-help. So whether it's religious or irreligious, it's the same kind of ideology. But what changes is this radical relationality is I am who I am because I'm a son or daughter of God. And therefore, his image has been imprinted upon my soul. And if I'm breathing, then my atoms are being sustained by the living Christ. And so is yours. And so is everyone outside of these walls. And it alters our perspective. And so... So we're not pursuing to become someone new. We're, we're, we're pursuing to align with the new we have become. We should stop becoming and start aligning. The new covenant is not an achievement. It is a gift. And what the crazy thing is, is we would all say yes, and we would answer that way on a test. But then we live like it's an achievement that we have to keep maintaining rather than a gift that we live our lives out of the passion of gratitude. Discipleship should be less like basic training and be more like a dance party. That's what we're invited to. Just find out who you are and dance about it. You, you won't have to go looking for people to evangelize. They will be drawn to you because of the reality from which you are living. And so, it's important then, if we're, if we're talking about the difference of our understanding of this new covenant, let's understand what it is. So for that, we're going to get a little bit theological. So everybody just kind of roll your neck here. here. All right, very good. Now we're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8 is one of the New Testament scriptures that talks about this idea of the new covenant which is the pressing forward to what's ahead of us that Paul's talking about. There was something behind us, but now we've got to press to what's in front of us. Here's what it looks like in my biography, but I'm saying that every one of you ought to adopt this. Remember, he said this last week. And if you don't, well, I'll pray for you and God will convince you later on down the road. Anybody use that with their uh, spouse or partner this week? Uh, with children, that's good. I, I, I I was a coward. I never said it to my wife, but I did say it to my child once this week. Yeah. Okay. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 through 13. Now, this is a New Testament uh, uh, scripture, but remember now, it, it, this is a collection of Old Testament scriptures that he's quoting from. And look at, what's the name of the book again? So, if we are reading it, his story, their story, our story, my story, then we have to remember it's not called the book of evangelicals, okay? It's called the book of Hebrews. Anybody care to guess why it's called Hebrews? Because he's writing to the Hebrews. He is trying to help these, uh, these, these, these Jewish believers that are trying to make sense of this time, unique time period they're living in called the now and the not yet, where they're trying to understand what does it mean that the old covenant is, is fulfilled and becoming obsolete and making way for this new covenant that, by the way, isn't just for us and our religious and ethnic group, but is for the entire world, which is very offensive. And they're trying to wrap their heads around and figure out how this works. What a lot, a lot of the book of Acts 
Acts is about, and a lot of Paul's letters is addressing this issue. Well, so is the writer of the Hebrews, whoever he or she may be, we don't exactly know. And so, so let's, let's take a look at the way they communicate it. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. But finding fault with his people, he says, see the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. I showed no concern for them, says the Lord, because they did not continue in my covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother or sister saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest among them. For I will forgive their wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins. By saying a new covenant, he has declared that the first is obsolete and what is obsolete is growing old, uh, what is obsolete and growing old is about to pass away. Now, you don't have to believe it this way, but what makes sense to me is this time frame he's referencing is the symbolism of 70 AD when Jerusalem is destroyed and the temple is raised to the ground, never to be built again, was the finality of this is over. Why? Because they could no longer offer the sacrifice. They couldn't practice the sacrificial system in the holy uh, city and in the holy place any longer. They tried a little bit, but it was never the same after that. And eventually uh, the synagogue replaces the temple. But the point is, that symbolic is, that was a thing that passed away and it was soon happening for them, but it's the past for us. And so what I would encourage you is if you're someone who has a passion for evangelism, stop worrying about the new fancy ways of bringing people to Christ that we came up with with the past 100 years. That's not the really scriptural gospel anyway. It's just a cultural phenomenon. So let's set it aside. And if you want to share the gospel with someone, why don't you steep yourself in Hebrews chapter 8? Saying, I've got a message for you. I've heard it. I know I'm a sinner. I deserve hell. But if I ask, if I believe Jesus died on the cross and rose from the third day, then I'll be forgiven of my sins. Oh, that's pretty good. That's some good stuff. But no, that's not the message I have from the scripture. I just have a message of proclamation. God's made a new covenant with humanity. He's put a spirit in you because he poured his spirit out on all flesh. You're made in the image of God. All of these objections that you think disqualify you from a spiritual life of faithfulness of God, he has removed these obstacles. They only remain as illusions in your mind, driving you back into fear and shame and hiding. Guess what? You can come out of the fig trees. 
run back to your father because he has made all things new and he's reconciled the entire universe to himself in the work of Christ. And there are several scriptures we've looked at that, that celebrate this reality. So what I'm here to tell you is that you may not know it, but you know God. He's actually imprinted himself on your heart. Now, you may be ignorant of how to connect with that and align yourself and live by it. And if you want, I can be a partner with you in that journey and we can talk about that together. But you need to understand, I'm not trying to get you into a place where you're worthy and lovable to God. The message is, you're forgiven. You are forgiven. Sin has been dealt with. It's been removed. In fact, the Savior I'm proclaiming, you've heard as the Lamb of God who takes the way of Christians, but we're going to go back to the scriptures that celebrates the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's who I'm representing. I'm not here to tell you what to believe and what to do. I'm here just to let you know what God has done for you. And now we get back to the closer meeting of gospel, which is good tidings. It's an announcement, but we've made it a scary message about what you're supposed to do. But it's supposed to be a proclamation of what God has done, and we all get to participate in it, and we get to celebrate together. So let's think about this. If we're thinking about, and we really want to take seriously what it might mean, to appreciate this powerful idea of the new covenant that, is, that God has made uh, in Christ on behalf of humanity, what does that mean? Well, let's just go back to the scripture. Now that we've looked at it as his story and their story, let's start to think about what it might mean for our story. And my points here, I have eight points. Porcupine sermon. Eight points. Stupid joke, I know. Um, I didn't like it either when I heard it, but uh, I have eight points, and, and we're going to spend about 10 minutes on each point because I really want us to be grounded in this revelation. Now, here's the thing. These are super simple because I wasn't being clever. All I did was pull out what's right there in the scripture. So let's look at this for our story. This is a universal declaration of the new covenant prize. Number one, God's laws have been put into my heart. Number two, God's laws have been written on my heart. See, I'm not being clever. I'm just rephrasing what was in the scripture. I want to make that crystal clear here. God is my God. There's no stipulation of my belief in all of that kind of thing. And God was always lovingly taking care of me even when I didn't believe in him. It didn't limit his love. It limited my consciousness of experiencing that love without a doubt, but it didn't limit his ability to love me or his commitment to love me. He just is my God. Number four, I am God's son or daughter. That is to say, he is mine and I am his. Number five, I do not need to submit to a human admonition to know the Lord because I already know him. Number six, 
God has forgiven my wrongdoing or my sin or my trespasses. Insert whatever word you want to use. My toxic behavior, whatever. Number seven, God will never again remember my sins. Again, like Paul, I doubt that means literally, but what he's emphasizing is God doesn't relate to us on the basis of his awareness of our sins. Number seven, or number eight, I am part of the new inclusive covenant covenant with humanity because the former exclusive covenant is obsolete and has now passed away. Why? Because it was imperfect, faulty? No, because it was fulfilled. It was fulfilled in Christ. And now there's a whole new reality. Now I understand this is confusing because two-thirds of our holy book is about the old covenant. And so it's confusing for us, but it is a mistake for us to read Old Covenant admonitions as though these were supposed to be um, rules that were submit to in order to be right with God. I don't even really think that's what they were doing there, but that's for another discussion and another cup of coffee. I mean, this idea that the Jews believed they could earn their salvation doesn't hold up with historical theological investigation. But again, take me for a Reuben or or bring me some good pipe tobacco and we'll talk about it. But so then what I want to encourage you within, if this, if, if this speaks to you, if this touches your heart, if, if you, if you're like, look, if what you're doing is working for you, I have no problem. I don't want to correct anyone. And in fact, this is what makes me such a bad pastor. I don't want to convince anyone to believe anything. And least of which I don't want to come across as I believe everyone should believe like me. I am bearing witness to a reality that is alive in my heart and has altered the person that I am. And therefore, I'm very excited to share that story with you if it bears witness to you. But my intention is not to condemn your story or to judge it or to shame you for another path. If what you're doing is causing you to grow into Christ and to become a more gracious, loving, merciful person, You're going to get nothing from me but applause. But what I am saying is if you've become distracted because you've misapplied what religion is supposed to do for you, and instead of of an impulse of liberation, it has become a source of fear, shame, and bondage to you, I want to say there are other ways of doing this thing. And when you get exhausted enough, and if you're tired, maybe you want to try a different approach. And so, if this begins to resonate, you know, I've never really thought about what it means that there was a former covenant that was was fulfilled, and now we're living in the days of a new covenant. It is almost as though um, the Gentiles are the postscript of the Bible, or it is the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe post-credit scene. That's what we're in here. The movie was about a whole never different ancient people and it had a beginning and it had a conclusion to their story. The gospel is how we live in light of that story that has been fulfilled and the story that God is now telling with humanity as he has chosen to raise up a people, a generation 2,000 years ago that said, this is for everyone. So this might be a practice that could be helpful. Take what we talked about, about the principles of this new covenant, and really personalize it. 
Personal affirmations of the new covenant prize. Uh, and maybe affirmation, that sounds a little bit too weak to you or whatever. You don't like that word. Fine. Insert whatever word. Declaration. That's a little bit tougher, right, than an affirmation. Declaration. Fine. These are new covenant declarations. But what I am suggesting is, if you want to alter your thinking, take a moment to literally say these things out loud to yourself daily. Not just this afternoon. Okay, look, you already have a 100-day assignment. Just give this one 31 days. And, and then let's get together and talk about your experience. Personal affirmation of the New Covenant Prize. This is just applying what we talked about. Number one is this. My sins do not hinder God's relationship with me because he has chosen to forgive them and forget them. Now, again, I am not saying that they don't hinder my relationship with God because if I choose to walk in unbelief and be defined by those things, certainly it's going to impact my conscious celebration of God's mercy and love in my life. But I have to understand that that is not how God is. God is not altered by that. But why? Because he has chosen to look upon my sins with the heart of forgiveness. N number two, affirmation or declaration, I belong to God and he belongs to me because he has chosen to give himself to me and accept me as his own. That's how I read that declaration of the new covenant. And finally this, I can trust my heart because God has chosen to write his laws there. If I am going to obey God's word, then I must become comfortable with hearing it in my heart. Because this is the nature of the new covenant. Am I saying there is no use in reading this external written word? Of course I'm not. <laughs> it feeds my soul. It allows me to be faithful to my job, and in some ways it pays the bills. Of course I'm not going to belittle and say we should stop reading and studying the Bible. I'm not trying to belittle that, but what I'm saying is let's recognize it as the story that explains the experience, not the thing we're submitting to and trying to, to use to define it. These are languages. These are, this is words that we are using to explain this miracle that has happened, and it comes to us through the Scripture, but ultimately it's not about reading the book and thinking about it. It is about encountering the presence of the person to whom it is pointing, and it is about being willing to have the guts to believe that you really are who it says that you are. And so in order to do that, I have to recognize that God's, the Bible, the scripture itself, the thing that we typically refer to as God's word, he says, it's gotta be more, you gotta understand that bigger than the Bible because he didn't stick, he didn't do open heart surgery and stick a Bible in your chest, but he did write his laws on your heart. He did put his word there. And in fact, Paul says, he actually moved in. He actually lives within you. He is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And therefore, you've got to risk the scary growth of awakening to your intuition again. 
especially if you grew up in church because it would have been demonized because in church if you say I just want to follow me follow my heart there's someone that's going to reach into the old covenant and say well be careful young whippersnapper Bible says that the heart is wicked who can understand it it's in Jeremiah I get it the author of Hebrews says his laws are written on my heart and that Christ dwells there our spiritual practice is not information for the mind it begins in the heart there's a friend of mine who is also a Christian counselor and a lot of the reason I mean he, he was he powerfully influenced uh, my understanding of these ideas uh, two men really uh, Tim Lehman and Mike Wells and I was lucky enough to at some point know both of them as friends and one of the things uh, Mike shares a story of a couple that came to him a very devout Christian couple and uh, they were having pretty serious marital difficulties that's why they came to him but somehow the conversation began with how much scripture they had memorized and it was impressive I mean it's like that friend of mine I told you about in Kansas City that played the clock game look and say 1102 he had me challenge him all the time and he'd go Nehemiah 11 2 and he would quote a scripture now he couldn't do it all the time but I'll tell you this dude could do it more often than he couldn't do it and and I think that's great I, I think it's it's great it's healthy for your spirit it's good for your mind helps against dementia all these things good stuff but they'd memorized all these scriptures and Mike said that's not the thing that's going to fix your marriage well they really were offended by that and they fired him then he looks at his calendar and they're back on the appointment book and he comes in he says what's going on why are you here well they begin to tell him a tale of what took place in their Christian home which began with an argument that ended with plates being thrown and shattered against the wall screaming at one another Mike listened to the story and then he finally said well did you quote any scripture So again, it's not that scripture memory is bad, but th this won't save you unless you're letting this message of forgiveness, mercy, and reconciliation settle down in your heart until you realize you stand before a forgiving God who wraps his love and acceptance around you because he chooses to. If you can come to believe that, you might end up becoming someone who stops protecting themselves in all their other relationships. You might be willing to lead with vulnerability and give the love and mercy that was given to you. And you might risk it. And when you do, you might experience some healing take place. But even if you don't, because this isn't a tactic for fixing your marriage, see, quit doing that. We always say, oh, that's the key. No, no, it's not the key. That's not what I'm saying. Because even if your marriage fails, you will still have learned to be aligned with who you are. I am not saying build your vulnerability and openness to Jesus so your marriage will be fixed and your relationships will be better. I hope that happens. But I am saying 
You have to do it for your own sanity because you were not made for a world of resentment, violence, self-protection, and hiding yourselves from others, and your soul cannot flourish from that place. You were made for mercy and grace and not codependent community, but interdependent community that extends from a place of health, not because we're using good friendships as a replacement for savior. Not letting our marriages, our kids, and our friends be our savior, letting them be who they are, where they're just objects of where we place that love that's coming place within our, that's taking place in our heart. But to do that, you've got to understand that the New Testament celebrates the inner life of the heart. It celebrates the fact that God whispers to you there. It celebrates the fact that he's revealing himself to you there and that he's there way well before another external person says, you should know the Lord. Remember the new covenant? No one will have to tell his neighbor, know the Lord. Why? Because they all will know me. It's interesting when you awaken to that reality. I had a weird experience just recently as I've tried to practice what I preach and create time and rhythms in my life where there's some stillness so I can pay more attention to what's being said in my heart. And as God, I believe, I mean, I understand it could be an, I could be a crazy person. Okay, I get that. I don't know everything. It is possible that I'm just an insane person out in the field talking to myself. I get that. However, my interpretation is this is God revealing himself to me. And And as I just sat and listened, I had this very strange response, which was this. You've really been here all along, haven't you? This isn't brand new. I recognize. I can tell how this made me feel. You've really been here all along. And I've I've lived as though you were distant. And my heart is just so settled in that reality. But this is not because, you know, I starved myself for 40, 40 days or dropped some kind of substance. It's the revelation that comes from studying the scriptures and making the choice to live based on what's said here, not some man-centered theological system that takes away the miracle of what's being said here so that we can control it, distill it down to steps that we can pursue. It just is right here. Christ is in you. Do you have the courage to take a second, to take a moment, to create a rhythm of life that allows you to be in tune to the God who's dwelling right here, speaking and leading? So I want to close with these ideas. If I want to give action to these affirmations, here is my suggested action. Number one, be defined by your identity in Christ and cease being defined by your sin. Live like you have a God. Especially if you're among the people that, pres- that profess to believe in one. Like I get being all worried and uptight and trying to control everything because you've got to protect yourself because you don't have a God. But if you say you believe in a God, stop doing that stuff. Let God be God. And one of the most miraculous things that some of us as, so-called, as, as professed Christians can do is really just live like we have a God. And number three, in keeping with the counsel of Scripture, trust your heart and follow it. God's laws have been written there. 
The hope of glory dwells there. Would you all stand, please? And would the worship team please come forward? Now, what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to take communion together, or not collectively, but we're all going to have an opportunity to take communion. And we're ending this way because as you think about these ideas about creating space to really trust this miraculous news that is the gospel, maybe you want to make a new commitment. Maybe you want to make a plan to kind of adjust what you're doing and what you call discipleship and move maybe in a direction that's a little more healthy. Maybe you've never considered the way of Christ as holding the key to the salvation of your life and you want to begin that journey. I can think of no better place than coming to the table of the Lord. This is Jesus's table. It's an extension of the last supper that he had with his disciples so many years ago. And he made this Passover meal about himself. So much that he says, when you eat this bread, this is my body. And when you drink this wine, it's the blood of a new covenant. This is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. So we're going to come to the table of the Lord and create some space to reflect and respond to whatever the Spirit may be doing. We're going to do that by starting out in that corner, this section over there here. You'll come down, come around, and take the elements, circle back around to your seat, and you can take communion there, either individually or with the people around you. This section here will start off right back in the back corner. You'll just come down, come back around and back to your seat and this one over here will be uh, uh, my uncle and my aunt and they'll come down around here and we'll go back to our seat and and I apologize I haven't made that more clear in the past weeks we've had some questions about that but let's come to the table of the Lord let's create some space what's God inviting you into here are you living from these glorious promises that Paul calls our prizes Or are you still living as though those things aren't real because of some deception you've picked up by your own shame or possibly even by the religion that bears Christ's name? It's okay to admit there's a difference between ideology about Christ and being in Christ. We have to discern the difference. And maybe it's time to make that move. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this new covenant. We are grateful that we are defined by your love for us, not what we do when we're ignorant of it and seeking to fulfill it artificially. Help us to hear the music to that dance. Help us hear the Spirit whispering our names to come home. Help us to see that when we are in that place where we want to withdraw and say we're no longer even worthy to be called yours, that is when you run to us and you say, grab the best robe and wrap it around them, rings for their fingers, shoes for their feet. For this child of mine was lost and is now found. This child of mine was dead and has now been made alive.